Right now I want to ask you to pray with me before we begin our study this morning. So uh, if you want to uh, bow your heads with me, let's come to the Lord together. Father in heaven, again we thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for your love towards us, your wanting to spend time with us, and uh, for caring for our needs. You have our best interest at heart always. Father, we're very thankful. We're thankful for Jesus, most precious gift that you gave to mankind, that we may have a chance at eternal life, and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we ask forgiveness for our sins as we claim his shed blood there at Calvary, and that he will continue through the power of the Holy Spirit work in us and uh, to change our sinful ways and uh, make us uh, to reflect, Lord, His image. We're very, very thankful uh, that this is the way that it's done, that we have promises that we can be overcomers, and we know that only overcomers will be in heaven. So we're very thankful for that. Father, we lift up those uh, that we know that are sick, that are ill, that are dealing with um, besetting sins, those who are dealing with persecution. Your people are being persecuted around the world. We know the time is short. We pray that you be very, very near to them. Uh, our friend here, Jerry, who, who cannot find her wallet, uh, we know that there are important things in such things as, as our purses and our wallets, and uh, it can just disrupt the flow of things. We know that the devil is behind these these things. We pray that you will... Uh, help her to find that. We very sincerely, Lord, and earnestly pray for Rollins' mother uh, that uh, her health will endure, that she will uh, take the fluids that she needs uh, to be coherent. Uh, she's going to be 95 in August. That's a long time, Lord. And so uh, we pray that you be very near to her, be with Roland as he uh, cares for her, be with Susan who couldn't be here today. Please be very near to her as she uh, takes care of uh, Betty. And uh, be with your saints around the world who are worshiping you on this most holy day. And Father, I ask that you give me the words to speak. This is an incredible topic. It's one, uh, just another thing that we need to have clear so that we will not be deceived by the devil. So please give me the words to speak. May they be your words, not mine, or man's opinion. And uh, Lord, please send the Holy Spirit to soften hearts and open their minds. Give us all discernment. Then we may understand this truth and share it. We thank you again so much for Jesus. We ask this in his blessed name, for he's so worthy. Amen. Amen. You have a blessing. Oh, good. That's good news. That's a praise. The Lord has giving you more work, that's more income. Now you just need a wallet to put all that income in. <laughs> Last week we began a, a, a study, we began looking at who Antichrist is. It's a message that I've entitled Identifying Antichrist. Um, we are studying how the Bible identifies Antichrist. And in part one we learned that there was a specific time frame as to when this power would arrive along with some important attributes about this Antichrist power. And we found exactly where on earth this power would arise. And we learned that it was uh, going to arrive during the time of the division of the Roman kingdom into those ten kingdoms, those ten parts. And we looked at who those kingdoms were. And, and so we saw that this Antichrist power would arise in Europe uh, sometime after the year 476 A.D. This is during the time of those ten kingdoms. Uh, and uh, so we, we came to the conclusion that, you know, if somebody said he's coming from Jerusalem or he's coming from the Mideast, we know that that, to, that is false, don't we? According to God's Word. We learned also that this power was to arrive before the second coming of Jesus. As the Apostle Paul made very, very clear, the Antichrist is not going to appear 
after Christ has come, which is uh, most of Christian believes is going to happen. It's just amazing to me if they would um, study God's Word, get away from some of these newer translations that have changed so many things, go back to the King James Bible. Even the new King James Bible will will help you along the way. But go back to the King James and you, you'll you find that uh, the truth is that he's going to be destroyed, isn't he? At the brightness of Christ's coming. He's not going to come after Jesus comes. There's not going to, to be a, a secret rapture of Christians and then the Antichrist come. The Bible doesn't teach that. And this is where we pick up our study this morning. Uh, let's go back to Paul's counsel to the church there at Thessalonica. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 and 9. And this is where we left off the last time we were together. Paul says here, he says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. This Antichrist power, friends, is going to come with deceptive signs. He's going to come, as Paul says there, according to the working of Satan. It says he's going to come with all power. Now, all power there is talking about all satanic power. Okay? And when you realize that, then you understand why Ellen White says, unless we continually rely upon the power of God, we will be deceived. And this is something that we have to learn at the foot of the cross and by following Jesus as He says, follow me. We have to learn to continually rely upon the power of God. Let me share this with you. It's from the Magic Releases, Volume 19, page 54. She says, It is not miracle-working power by which our faith is substantiated. You know, if that was the case, you go back to Egypt when those Israelites saw all those miracles that God performed, and yet that generation up to 20 years old, or you know, 20 years old and older, perished in the wilderness, didn't they? So it's not miracles that substantiates our faith, is it? And this is what she's saying. It's not miracle-working power by which our faith is substantiated. We must rely upon what? The power of God. We must stand upon his platform of eternal truth. His word, the Bible, is the foundation of our faith. Unless we plant our feet upon this foundation, unless we substantiate our faith by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, she says, we shall be deceived by Satan when he comes in glory claiming to be Christ. So, friends, this is not a gray area. This is an if-then. If we do not rely upon the power of God, we will be deceived by Satan. Is that clear? That's pretty clear, isn't it? Every morning, before we even get out of bed or talk to anybody, we should be committing our life to the Lord. Do you believe that? Asking that His Holy Spirit will be in charge of our minds and not allow us to come under the deception, those deceptive powers of the Antichrist. And let me tell you something, that deceptive power is getting much, much worse than it has ever been in the past. Would you agree with that? Now Paul said there, he said the Antichrist power is going to come with lying wonders. Friends, I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that the world today does not believe the Bible. But if there is an apparition of the Virgin Mary somewhere, they will travel halfway around the world to see it. 
And they really don't even know what they're looking at, do they? They really don't. And when you have all these lying wonders that are going to be manifested, what do you expect is going to happen? Well, the whole world's going to be deceived, isn't it? Except those whose lives are committed to Jesus. Those who are converted, who are obeying and following Him. You see, the Holy Spirit will enable he will enable them to tell the difference between the false and the true. And let me tell you, it'll take the wisdom of the Holy Spirit because inspiration says that the path of error and the path of truth will be so close together that without the Holy Spirit, you'll not be able to tell the difference. There are theologians who know what the Bible says, but they don't have faith in God. You believe that? They teach error. They believe error. But the, it's like Paul said, they deny the power thereof. What power are they denying? The power of God. What did we just read about the power of God? Unless we totally rely upon the power of God, we will be deceived. Let me share this with you. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 8, page 290. We are living in an age of great light. Are we? you agree with that statement? We know that time in Daniel, Daniel said, knowledge shall be increased. She says, but much that is called light is opening the way for the wisdom and arts of Satan. Many things will be presented that appear to be true. How many things? Many things. And yet they need to be carefully considered with much prayer, for they may be specious devices of the enemy. And let me tell you, friends, let me stop right here for a moment. Let me tell you that there is a tremendous amount of fanaticism that's wafting out throughout Adventism that is strongly being called light or new light, shall we say. And you look at it, and from our human standpoint, it all sounds so logical, and it's, it sounds so true. But I want to tell you, friends, you better be very careful. You better be very careful. Please, do not follow man. <laughs> Test everything against God's Word. As Pastor Brooks used to say, you better check me out. Check me out what I'm saying to you. I always appreciated that by, about him. Check me out. Test me out against God's Word. Do the same with me. And if what I present is not according to the Scriptures, let me know because I want to know. You're wrong. <laughs> you better be able to prove it. No, I just said... I don't want to you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, my wife... That's not that's not a tough thing for my wife to <laughs> to do to tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. As she goes on, she says, The path of error often appears to lie close to the path of truth. It is hardly distinguishable from the path that leads to holiness in heaven. But the mind here's the key. The mind enlightened by the Holy Spirit, may discern that it is diverging from the right way. And after a while, the two are seen to be widely separated. And so, friends, that's why we need to be praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit day by day. So we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will be in control of our mind and help us not to offend God by sinning in either thought or word or action. You see, because the commission of a known sin silences the voice of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? And then what happens? You're vulnerable. Then you're vulnerable. And the devil knows that. And that's why he's always trying to entice God's people to sin. So he can get at them to destroy them. You see? 
Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's continue on. Let's look at verse 10. Paul says, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not, what? The love of the truth, that they might be saved. And let me tell you, everyone who does not love the truth is going to be deceived by the Antichrist, friends. It's going to be deceived by this power. You have to love the truth. How do you prove that you love the truth? Do you just say, oh, I love the truth? Obedience. People see. They see a change in your life, don't they? Look at verse 11. And for this cause, because they don't have a love for the truth, for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, not just delusion, strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now God doesn't send that, but that He allows that, doesn't He? And so the Antichrist is going to come with a lie here, Paul's talking about. And what is this lie? Do you know what this lie is? Remember, it's a strong delusion. What is the strongest delusion that you think that Satan can pull upon the whole world? Miracles. Well, of miracles, what would be the strongest delusion oh, well. that would capture the greatest amount of people, the whole world? Claiming to be Christ. You agree with that? And and the thing is, though, it's a Christ that is different than us. It's a Christ we can never be like at all because of this difference. It's a Christ that is beautiful and lovely but cannot really save us. And that's the power of the the deception, you see. From the book Faith and Works, page 56. The time is coming when Satan will work miracles right in your sight. Claiming that he is Christ. And if your feet are not firmly established upon what? The truth of God, then you will be led away from your foundation. This is why the Bible tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. We must be firmly established upon the truth of God. And to do this, we must be able to know God's Word accurately. And to use correct principles that He's laid out on how to study the Bible. This is one of the things I run into the most. People do not have correct study principles. This is why fanaticisms come... Uh, come in like a flood. Especially in our country. People depend so much upon what a minister says, Well, and they read it right out of the Bible, but they're not comprehending what they're reading. They're taking what the pastor, the minister says, as gospel truth. When if you test them out, you'll find more times than not in, in Christendom today, sad to say, they're espousing error. And as Ellen White says, the devil lines it up really close to the truth. It's hard to discern, and we need who to help us to discern it? The Holy Spirit. See, The Holy Spirit will lead us to that truth if we don't get in His way and reject light that He's shared. And I'll tell you, just very simply, friends, you can take the Word of God as it reads. Don't, don't overthink it. That happens quite a lot. Don't overthink it. Let me tell you, God communicates to us in really simple ways. And we too often think it's harder than it really is. And if a preacher comes to you and he has to share pages and pages of supposed proof, you know, and this supposed proof contains dozens of graphs and hundreds of quotes just to make a point, you better be wary of him. You better be wary. Satan's knocking at your door. God talks to our hearts. And the Bible tells us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And please don't understand, misunderstand what I'm saying. Some graphs and quotes are needed, okay? I'm not saying, you know, reject anybody who has a graph or has a, you know. Um, but we need a plain, thus saith the Lord, don't we? 
We need a plain, thus saith the Lord, more than we need some preachers, 100 pages of quotes and graphs. You get what I'm saying? You know, this Antichrist power will tell you, you're not trained to understand God's Word. Years ago when I was called into ministry, a lady questioned me. Where did you go to theological school? I said, at the foot of the cross. Isn't that where John the Baptist went to school? We need to be very, very careful. Because like I said, if you have to jump through that many things to get to the point, my advice would be to stand clear. Because friends, we're living in a time of great deception and the devil's pulling out all the stops right now. I see so many people getting pulled away by this fanatical idea and that fanatical idea and they think that they are somehow more enlightened than their fellows because there's this new light. And I want to tell you, this is the devil's way of securing your doom, friends. And when these fanaticisms don't work... His last deception is to claim to be Christ. Revelation 13 talks about this Antichrist power. It's the very same power that we've just been looking at there in 2 Thessalonians 2. We've looked at Daniel 7 before. Our scripture reading today was Revelation 13, verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So we know that this is talking about the Antichrist power, don't we? Because if it was talking about the power of God, God can't blaspheme God, can he? So we know this is talking about the Antichrist power. He he uses his mouth to blaspheme God. Let's back up to verse 1 of chapter 13, and let's just begin reading. Let's get kind of the background here, and then we'll kind of go through it a bit. A little refresher for the church of prophecy here, amen? And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns. And upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So this is an interesting kind of beast, isn't it? And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wandered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now you'll find that's the same as we found in Daniel 7 there of the 1260 years, right? A day for your principle. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Like I said, friends, this is not a gray area here. It's black and white. It's one side or the other. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, let me ask you a question here. We just read the first ten verses here in Revelation chapter 13. Who is this beast, this Antichrist power that is being described here? Okay? Think about that question. It says that this is the beast that rises up out of the sea. Or from 
many people. You know, we as Seventh-day Adventists who follow the spirit of prophecy, right? We know what it means for a beast to rise up out of the earth, don't we? Right? That means that that's where the population was very sparse. And we know what it means when a beast rises up out of the sea, do we not? That means there were multitudes of people. So we know that, don't we? If not, well, let's get back to it, right? Let me refresh your memory. Revelation 17 and verse 15. It says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So you, you understand, right? There's a little refresher scripture for you there. Now, according to Revelation 13, it said that this beast had seven heads and had ten horns, and it has ten crowns on his ten horns. It says that this Antichrist power has a blasphemous name. All those descriptions there are given in verse 1 there. Chapter 13. Verse 2 tells us that this Antichrist power is like a leopard. It's a beast. And a beast represents a power. Right? we Discovered that in Daniel 7. It represents a political power, a kingdom. Now, did you notice the different parts that this beast was made up of? It's a composite beast, isn't it? Part of it is like a bear, part of it's like a lion, and so forth. And where did he get his power from? The dragon gave him his power. Who is that dragon? Revelation 12 tells us that that's the devil, it's Satan, that deceiver. And the dragon also gave him his throne. That means his seat of government. The dragon gave him great authority. Now, one very significant identifying mark is given in verse 3. In verse 3, what did it say? It said one of his heads received a deadly wound, didn't it? Now let's think about that for a moment, what this deadly wound is. There's all kinds of speculation out there, but God has told us the truth, hasn't He? To understand what the deadly wound is, you have to understand the papacy. What the papacy is, in its central, how do I describe this? Its central essence is the union of the power of the church and the power of the state combined all in one with the church on top, the church controlling it. Does that make sense? And that's a very important uh, concept to understand. Because if you don't understand that, you have no comprehension of what the papacy, papacy really is all about, friends. The papacy is a union of the church with the state, but the church is in control. So the church uses the state for its own purposes and its own ends. Okay, And we discovered before in our studies that the, this spirit of lawlessness, lawlessness, this papacy, goes clear back to Paul's time. That power was present in his day, remember. But the actual union with the church-controlled state, it didn't occur for, occur for the first time until 538 A.D. Remember, after the, the final of those three horns were overthrown, those three kingdoms that were plucked up as the little horn power grew? All through the Dark Ages, the Pope had controlled what was called the Papal State in Italy. But after the 1260 years there in 1798, friends, the, the Catholic Church didn't cease to exist. It was still there, wasn't it? It received a deadly wound. The Catholic Church existed, but its civil power was removed. And it was removed for the first time since 538 A.D. And the Pope, he was exiled. He actually died in exile. And that was... Exactly 1260 years, by the way, which is exactly what prophecy declared. And when they elected a new pope in 1800, he had no civil authority. And from then on, the pope had no civil authority. He had no kingdom. 
And that's what it means by a deadly wound. But I want you to notice that it, it was a deadly wound and not a fatal wound. It didn't say fatal wound, did it? Verse 3 goes on to say that the deadly wound would be healed. Well, what does that mean? It means that the church would again someday be in union with the state as it once was. And that deadly wound healing began in 1929, friends, when the papacy was given territory again where they, they had their own government on one of the seven hills there in Rome. The hill on which their kingdom sits, where their government is located, that's called Vatican Hill. Or the Vatican. You've heard that before, haven't you? That's their seat of authority. That's where their throne is. Some of you are old enough to remember in the early 80s, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, sent an ambassador to the Vatican. you remember that? That was a big thing. Why did he do that? Did you know that since 1867 the United States had refused to send an ambassador to the Vatican? However, because it's said this man's not just the head of a church, he's also the head of a state government, isn't he? He's the king of a state as well as the head of a church, so it's right that we should have a representative from all the governments of the world send ambassadors to that country. Nothing else like it, friends. Revelation 13 says the deadly wound was healed. But after the deadly wound was healed, it says He blasphemed those who dwell in heaven. Then it says in verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nation. And this again, this is a very conclusive identifying mark of Antichrist. So let's think about this for a minute. This is a a superpower, isn't it? With authority worldwide. Not just in Europe. You can go anywhere in this world and mention the Pope and they'll know exactly who you're talking about. Would you agree with that? It's a very conclusive identifying mark. Because you see, that could never apply to, let's say, communism. Because communism has never had authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They tried. And they continue to try. China's trying. It's never going to happen. People are scared to death of China that China is going to take over the world. According to God's Word, it will never happen. Never happen. Scared about Islam taking over the world? Never happen. It will not happen. Because they don't qualify. They're not... They're not quali- there are no qualifications for them to identify them as Antichrist. This Antichrist power. But I find many Adventists getting mixed up about the role of communism and Islam and, and such and attributing this beast in some way to it. But it just doesn't line up with the Bible, friends. It just doesn't. Verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Again, it shows that the Antichrist is a religion, a religion's power, combination of church and state with the church in charge. Let's drop down to verse 18. And this is a very interesting identifying mark. Here is wisdom... You know, when I run into that statement in the Bible, I really perk up. Here's wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred three score and six. 
What's a score, biblically speaking? Do you guys know what a score is equal to? No, it's 20. A score is 20. So you have 600 and you have 3 score, that would be 60, right? And 6. So the number of this beast, this Antichrist power, is calculated to be 666 or 666. It's interesting. You know, I've, I've run into people when I talk about prophecy and they say, well, how do you attribute that to, you know, the papacy? How do you, how, how's it, you know, that's, it's not. Well, friends, they come out and admit it themselves. Did you, did you know that? It, it's interesting that the Roman Catholic Dewey version of the Bible, in a footnote to this verse, Revelation 13, verse 18, it correctly states this. This is the footnote. It says, 666. The numerical letters of this name shall make up this number. What? The numerical letters of this name shall make up this number. Now, this is coming from a church which has used Latin as its ecclesiastical language. A language by the way, which has seven numerical letters. I is equal to 1, V is equal to 5, X is equal to 10, L is equal to 50, C is equal to 100, D equals 500, and M equals 1,000. So friends, when they come out and make a statement like that, and you look at this language, and you see those numerical um numbers associated with these these letters, the search isn't a difficult one to find who represents that. In fact, they admit it. <laughs> it's really remarkable. Well, you may ask, well, how so? How does that admit? Well, if you look at the title that's inscribed in the papal tiara, and the papal tiara is actually a three-tiered crown, okay, but inscribed, the title inscribed on that tiara is Vicarious Philly Day. That's Latin. It's, it means Vicar of the Son of God, if you were to translate it. But I want you to notice what the United States Roman Catholic paper entitled Our Sunday Visitor admitted November 15, 1914. This is from their own publication. They said, quote, The title of the Pope of Rome is Vicarious Philly Day. And if you take the letters of his title, which represent Latin numerals, and add them together, they come to 666. Vicarious Philly Day means Vicar of the Son of God. They published it themselves. So how... Ha- Again, how did this Roman Catholic newspaper discern the number 666 from this Latin title? So they, what they did was they ascribed to this title, they ascribed these numbers. Um, they did it themselves. This Catholic you know, newspaper um, and when you check it out using this method, something else you need to keep in mind too is that uh, there is no letter U in the Latin alphabet, but V was used in its place. So, you know, they come out basically and they admit it themselves. <laughs> they admit it themselves. Now, I've run into some people who try to find others whose names by some method of calculation adds to 666, you know. Yeah, I think, yeah, should be able to. But the lone significance to Bible prophecy, friends, is whether the papacy meets this criterion because they've already hit some of the identifying marks, see? And we've seen, even the Roman Catholics admit that this does. (laughs) So it's pretty remarkable. Uh, One more text about the Antichrist is found in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, let's just read. I'll just start with verse 1 and start reading here. 
first six verses, I think, cover it pretty well. John says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. What are we supposed to do with these spirits? We're to, we're to try them. What's that mean? That means to test them, doesn't it? We're to try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. And this is John speaking. Ye are of God, little children, have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How is it that you're going to be able to know what is error? You have to have the spirit of God. Is that what John's saying here? And I believe one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that almost the whole Christian world, those who profess Christianity, is in violation of these verses. And when there's an apparition, when there's a, a spiritual happening, when there's a wonder, when there's a miracle, people gawk at it and they say, isn't that wonderful? Have you seen that happen, friends? Oh, isn't that just wonderful? But what does the Bible say? John says here, he says, do not believe every spirit. We are to test the spirits. As he says, try them. That means test them. And if you're going to make it through the times just ahead, friends, every spirit, every miracle, every teaching, every wonder, every sign must be tested. How? How do you test these things? By the Word of God, isn't that right? Why? Why are you to test them? Well, because obviously not all the spirits are good. Now, verse 3 that we read there is explicit. It's very explicit and it's exact. It says, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. That, friends, is an unequivocal, absolute statement, isn't it? Furthermore, he says, This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Now, some people say, well, there's one Antichrist. That's what John's talking about here. But I want you to go to 1 John 2, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. The Apostle John makes it clear that there are many Antichrists, right? But he also makes it clear that these many Antichrists are people who came out of where? They come out of the world or did they come out of the church? They come out of the Christian church. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. And John says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. He's talking about the... Yeah. yeah. They went out from us. What? Where did they come from? From us. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And so even though he acknowledges that there are many Antichrists, he also acknowledges that there is one power that he calls Antichrist. Because he says, you have heard, and this, now I took this from the, verse 18, it's from the New King James Version. He says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Okay. 
And so the spirit of the Antichrist is the spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so this has to do with the philosophy and the purpose of Antichrist. Alright? What's it all about? That's what it has to do with. The question is, of course, what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh? Or to not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? What does that mean? Pardon me? I'll be getting to 1 John 2.16 in just a minute. But what does that mean? What John's saying here. What does that mean? There's been a lot of controversy, friends, really over this text for many centuries. And the reason that it is difficult for people to understand is because the word flesh there that John is using is a technical term in the New Testament. You know what a technical term is? You know, in every branch of knowledge we have what's called technical terms. Whether you're studying medicine or aviation or electricity or chemistry, whatever it is, every branch of knowledge has certain technical terms to explain certain things that you're studying. And the same is true in religion, friends. The Christian religion has some technical terms. And to understand the Bible, you've got to understand what these technical terms mean. And when the, apostle, the apostles talk about the flesh, they have something very specific in mind. Okay? Let's examine a few texts and see if we can figure out what this technical term means. The word flesh comes from the Greek word sarx. In the Latin, it's equivalent is the word carnal, and in the English equivalent is the word flesh. Okay? What does this technical term mean in the New Testament? Well, let's let John uh, answer that for us. First, John 2 and verse 16. First John chapter 2 and verse 16. John says, For all that is in the world... Notice he says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. It's really rather interesting because John, he's saying here that there are only three things in the world and one of those things is the lust of the flesh. And so flesh here, when you read about flesh and what they're, they're talking about here, and of course that's the English translation, right? But what the apostles are talking about, they're using a technical term. And it is one of only three things that even exist in this world, according to John. This flesh. Now let's see what the Apostle Paul says about it. He uses this term probably more than any other Bible writer does, actually. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. He says, this I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He uses it there. Verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Okay? So Paul says there is a fight going on in your mind. And that fight is between the flesh and between the spirit. And because of that battle, you cannot just do what comes naturally. If it feels good. This is what Paul's saying. Look at verse 18. But if ye be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Right? If you're being led by the spirit, you can have control. You're not under law. You're not under the condemnation of the law. This is what Paul's saying. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now, if the lust of the flesh is expressed in works, what will happen and, and, and what are the works? This is what Paul's saying. Because Paul lists about 17 things that tell what the works of the flesh are. This is what he says. He says... 
Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So he doesn't just limit it to the 17. He says, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall inherit the kingdom of God? No, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul lists all these things. Those are the works of the flesh. And people who live and manifest the works of the flesh are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven, Paul says. And this is what the apostles mean, see friends, when they talk about the flesh. In our modern English language, the equivalent expression to the flesh and all these things that Paul listed would be called sin. And the word carnal there is equal to the word flesh or self. And so when the apostles were talking about flesh and they were using the the Greek word sarks, what were they really talking about? What were they describing considering us as human beings. Because the flesh is battling with the spirit, right? So what they were speaking about was about our fallen, sinful human nature. And if you read in the Spirit of Prophecy, it says that that that's what we all have inside us. We have this fallen, sinful human nature. Let me share it with you. Education, page 29. The result of the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is manifest in every man's experience. There is in his nature a bent to evil, a force which, unaided, he cannot resist. To withstand this force... To attain that ideal which in his inmost soul he accepts as alone worthy, he can find help in but one power. What power is that? She says that power is Christ. Cooperation with that power is man's greatest need. In all educational effort, should not this cooperation be the highest aim? And so... It says that we have within us a bent to evil that we cannot resist. We can't resist it if we don't have help. Is that true? I think, sad to say, we've all experienced it, haven't we? Every human being experiences this. Have you ever heard a person say, well... I don't want to be a Christian, but I'm going to be a good person. People do that all the time. People say, well, you know, I, I, I match up my bad works with my good works, and I think I'm okay. God will surely take me to heaven, right? I'm a good person. Oh, no, you aren't. You are not. You may be a good person outwardly, but your heart will not be pure and holy without the power of Christ in you. It's not going to happen. It's impossible without Christ. There will be, you see, some selfish motive that dictates why you do the things you do. You can profess to be a Christian. You can preach in the pulpit, friends like the Lord has called me to. And if I don't have Christ in my heart, even preaching from the pulpit, the motivation to do that is from a selfish standpoint. You understand what I'm saying here? And all of us go through that. It's a bent to evil, as she puts it. 
We're familiar with Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, aren't we? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The expression desperately wicked literally means incurable. Did you know that? Incurable, that is without any ability to heal its own evil. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurable. The wickedness in it is incurable. This is what Jeremiah was saying. And so, the flesh is your sinful, fallen human nature. Okay? Right? So, that technical term that the apostles were using when they say flesh, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about the sinful, fallen human nature. And the Apostle Paul talks about this extensively in Romans chapter 8. Let's go to there and and, uh, I'll start wrapping it up here for this time. Romans chapter 8, we'll begin with verse 1 there. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh. What was that flesh? That bent to evil, right? But after the Spirit. See? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through that flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful, what? Flesh. What kind of flesh was it? That bent to evil. See? So He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. How do you do that? Because He walked through the Spirit. See? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded now they're using the you know, another translation, carnally, they could have said fleshly minded. For to be carnally minded, that is fleshly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, again, that's the fleshly mind, the unconverted mind, if you will, is enmity against God. What's enmity mean? Hatred. Hatred. It hates God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. I want you to notice that it's impossible. This is what Paul's saying. It's impossible. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Verse 9. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So mortify the deeds, does that mean like kill the flesh? Yeah, that bent, have control over it. And the only way you can have control over it, or gain control over it, is through Christ, to have the Spirit of God, see? So when we're converted, we receive the Holy Spirit. And then a warfare takes place in our heart and our mind. That warfare between the Spirit and the flesh. And Paul says you will live if according to the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The sinful, the carnal, fallen human nature. That bent to sin that you can't resist on your own without divine help. This is what Paul's saying. And that is why Jesus came, you see. Jesus came to give us that help to die to self, to die to the flesh. 
And the only way he could do it was if he became like us. And that's what it says. He became like us. And when when John says, see, Antichrist, who is Antichrist? They go after the flesh, right? When he uses that term flesh, and he says that Jesus, if it, and we'll get into Hebrews here uh, probably next time we're together, that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Right? Now what uh, Paul just told us, verse 3, that God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So when the New Testament talks about the flesh, what's it talking about? It's a technical term. It's talking about our fallen human nature, isn't it? Does that make sense? So, John's saying this is the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist are those who are not converted. They're the ones that that have that bent to evil and they, they have no way of resisting it. They say that Christ did not come in that flesh. He was somehow different than us. See? Because He's God, right? So when Jesus came down here and took a body, as the Bible says, a body hast thou prepared for me, and He came and took a body, that body was somehow different than us. Oh, He was hungry. You know. He had eyes. He could see. But when it talks about this battle... Oh no, he couldn't have had that battle because he was God. Only we have that battle, see? Am I making sense? <laughs> you guys are staring at me like... Yes. And so John is saying that spirit of Antichrist says that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And the what? And so we defined. Well, what do they mean by the technical term "flesh"? They're talking about that fallen, sinful nature. So Antichrist power says Jesus did not come in that. That's how you identify Antichrist. See, that's one of the identifying marks. But here, right here, we just read what Paul said. Right? God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin condemns sin in the flesh. So, when we talk about, and we, we get this technical term flesh here, we're talking about our fallen human nature. And when you see that repeatedly in Galatians 5 and Romans 8 and many other places in the New Testament. Now, how does this relate to what John describes as Antichrist? Like I said, we're, we'll find out the next time we get together. We're, we're going to get into, uh, I think, Hebrews a little bit. Well, and, actually, what are you saying then? If Jesus did not come in the sinful human flesh, then there's no way He could have failed. He couldn't have been tempted if He came down as God Himself. Exactly. Well, and he couldn't identify with us either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Bible, the Bible says, you can't tempt God. Right. Right. And so this is what Antichrist is saying: Jesus, you couldn't tempt him. He's God, so he's different than us. And this is what John's trying to make clear. And this is when John talks about the Antichrist. He says there are many Antichrists. Well, many Antichrists there are people who believe this thought. That Jesus is different than us, you know, in this respect. That he, the body he took, wasn't like our body. Beyond being hungry, you know, perspirating, you know, what I'm saying <laughs> those features, those physical features. Beyond those, he was completely different than us. But that's not what the gospels tell us. That's not what we see in the gospels. Okay. We see Jesus. And that's why He's our example. What we can become by having that indwelling Spirit. And also, a point too, is when Satan 
tempted Jesus with, I'll give you this whole world if you do what I ask you to do. Mm -hmm. So if Satan actually believed that Jesus couldn't be tempted, why would he try to tempt him? And what would be his point? Yeah, what's the point? Exactly. And Yeah, why why would Satan even waste the time? Yeah. yeah. Tempting Jesus when Jesus was at his weakest after forty days physically, mm-hmm. at his weakest after forty days of fasting in the wilderness. Why even bother tempting him if it's impossible to tempt God? Yeah. Exactly. Very good. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll pick up this study again uh next Sabbath when we come together. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we again thank you so very, very much for your holy word. We thank you for um, the Holy Spirit who helps lead us into all truth. And and uh, we pray for understanding. We pray that we can uh, take these identifying marks and understand them and, so that we will not be deceived by the devil. And we know the time is, is short and uh, that he's going to bring out more and more and more of these miracles and lying wonders and all power the power of Satan to to deceive the world. And we don't want to be deceived, Father. Uh, So give us discernment, give us ISAB that we may see, and give us love in our hearts, that love that Jesus has for us, that we may love one another as he has loved us, and and, uh, that we can prepare people for his soon coming. Please continue to be with us uh, on this Sabbath day, uh, that uh, we may keep it holy and bring glory to thy name. We pray this in Jesus' name. For he is so worthy. Amen.